listening to All the Books, a weekly show of recommendations and enthusiasm regarding the week's new book releases. This is episode 352, and today we are talking about books being released on March 8th, 2022, and more. I'm Liberty Hardy, here with Vanessa Diaz, and we're coming to you from bookriot.com. Vanessa, hello! Hello, Liberty. Here we are. Here we are. March 8th. For some reason... My mouth didn't want to say those two things together. I was like, Mark. I could tell. March 8th. I came up short. I don't know. Just wanted to stop. I was like, okay, we said enough words. We're done. No more. Which is not true because we're going to talk about books today. We are. That's my highlight of my week is talking about books and reading books and getting books and watching books fall over in my office. I swear, I was about to predict you were going to say that. <laughs> we know each other so well. <laughs> it doesn't happen very often. Like, no, I've but... been much better at, you know, weeding out the books as they come in instead of just like putting them all in big giant stacks. Especially since I started, like I have a, a little nap couch in my office where mm-hmm. I do a lot of my reading and like I'm surrounded by stacks of books and the cats are running around. So, you know, you only have to let a stack fall on me three times to get me to <laughs> change my ways. <laughs> <laughs> that's only only a few <laughs> hopefully yeah. no more no permanent bruising and you're good yeah that's fine <laughs> but i can't believe it's march it's yeah oh, i'm looking through like the list of books this month and i've read so many of them and it was hard to choose what i was going to talk about today because i was just so excited about a lot of things which is awesome good old march yeah and this is like March book madness, I guess we should call it. Oh, yes. I, I saw somebody that has a reading challenge out there that's called March Sadness, but it's about like reading a bunch of feel-good books and they have a bracket <laughs> and everything. And I was like, oh, uh, I, I dig the idea, but I don't know if I want to call it March Sadness, but you know, what a, each to their own. <laughs> do they want to read books that like make them cry? Is that that's a feel-good book? Because trying... that's like a feel-bad book, if you ask me. Although there are lots of great books that make you do both. I was but... about to say that. I'm like, well, there's the kind that make you do both. So maybe <laughs> that's what it was. I should have dug into it more because I was absolutely half asleep when I was like browsing through the internet. But um, <laughs> I just thought it was funny because like, again, yeah, they had a full-blown bracket and everything. It's like, oh, some thought went into this. Like, that's, that's good. Wow. <laughs> that's pretty cool. I would love to pick a reading challenge and stick with it someday, but... Preaching to the choir. I just... I'm too wiggly when it comes to setting goals, apparently. I try it every year. I'm like, this year I'm going to read all of this series, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to read more nonfiction, because mm-hmm. that's like every year, more nonfiction. And then I'm just like, wiggle around, I'm going to read the book. <laughs> like, that's that's my reading style, basically. I'm imagining the dance that went with that, at least for me, but <laughs> I, I did. I, I, You know, it's funny you say that, because I actually like shook in my... Yes. In my seat, and like pumped my fist up and down, like while I was doing that, so... See? We're going full wacky. Yeah, I was doing like that when Harry met Sally, like over by shuffle, but like in three time. You know, yes. so. <laughs> oh We're getting goodness. silly today and that is fine. Very silly. <laughs> so we are going to talk about books today, which is exciting. And it's a very rare uh, occasion when I read a book that I'm so excited about that I almost don't want to talk about it because I, there's no way I'm going to do it justice, which is mm. what is about to happen. Uh, once we hear from a sponsor. So let's hear from a sponsor and then see if we can, or if we, no, it's just me. Let's see if I can, if I can pull that off. I'll cheerlead. <laughs> Today's episode is brought to you by Harper Muse, publisher of Troubled Waters. 
Troubled Waters is an intimate portrait of two generations, a granddaughter and a grandmother, coming to terms with what it means to be family, black women, and alive in a world on fire. In heartfelt lyrical prose, Mary Inez Hegler weaves an unforgettable story of the climate crisis, black resistance, and the enduring power of family. Narrated by Janice Abbott-Pratt and written by climate justice writer Mary Anise Hegler, the Troubled Waters audiobook is available everywhere May 7th. It follows Corinne as she plans to stage a dramatic act of resistance and peels back the scabs of her family wounds and puts her safety in jeopardy. Both grandmother and granddaughter must bring their unspoken secrets into light to find a path to healing. Known for her essays that dissect and interrogate the climate crisis, drawing heavily on her personal experience as a black woman with deep roots in the South, Mary Anais Hegler brings us her first work of fiction titled Troubled Waters. Make sure to pick it up. Thanks again to Harper Muse, publisher of Troubled Waters, for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Greenleaf Book Group. No summer vacation should be without a great read. And I don't know about you, but I am partial to mysteries and thrillers for my hot month reads. It's hot girl reading summer always over here. And from the award-winning librettist of Legally Blonde, the musical and the screenwriter of Freaky Friday, Heather Hawk, comes the page-turning psychological thriller, The Trouble with Drowning. So when author Eden Hart floats into Tucson's Antigone books and all her dazzling perfection to give a reading, Kat, a struggling writer, can't help but compare herself. Thankfully, Kat's life starts to take on its own Eden-like glow when her literary future takes shape and she falls madly in love with Jacob. As demons from her past begin to surface, Kat's mental health craters and this halcyon dream slips through her fingers. For the fastest paced slow burn you won't be able to put down, be sure to check out The Trouble with Drowning by Heather Hawk on Amazon or your retailer of choice. And thanks again to Greenleaf Book Group for sponsoring this episode. Okay, so I read this book. I started reading it. I made the mistake of starting to read it uh, the other night because I was like, well, I've read several of today's books, but, you know, let's keep going. There's occasionally there's like no reason for me to stop. You know, I'll keep trying other things. And I started this book and I was like, I don't want to sit and watch the Celtics game tonight. I just want to read this book, which is very unusual for me. Like, I've watched every game this season and there's pretty much nothing that you can do to get me to stop. And so, but I was like, I just, I just need to keep reading this book. And I did watch the Celtics game and the first half was an absolute mess and I was mad at myself, but then they turned it around in the second and beat the Hawks and it was amazing. So I'm so glad. Yay, trauma. So glad that I watched it. But I immediately went back to this book. It is Booth by Karen Joy Fowler. And it is, (laughs) I don't even, it's a freaking masterpiece is all I can say. I am so in love with this book. Karen Joy Fowler wrote a book called We Are All Completely Beside Ourselves, which you might have heard of. It was a novel, which I cannot believe came out nine years ago. That was her last book. And it won a Penn Faulkner and was nominated for like a million things, including The Man Booker. And not to be confused with We Are All Completely Fine by Daryl Gregory, which is a really awesome book about a serial killer support group. Anyway, but... She's she's amazing and very prolific. She has a lot of work. I have only ever read We Are All Completely Beside Ourselves and then a collection of her stories, which I'm forgetting, Black something. And so I picked up this book, like I said, and it's about the Booth family. There's Junius Booth and his wife, Mary. Uh, the book is narrated by three of their ten children, Rosalie, Edwin, and Asia. And 
there it's this family growing up on a farm when it starts out uh living in outside of Baltimore and in between these chapters with these very long chapters the book is almost 500 pages these very long chapters that are narrated by these three children that i mentioned it's interspersed with bits about Abraham Lincoln and you might be asking yourself like why because this is about the Booth family who had 10 children one of whom was John Wilkes Booth the man who shot and killed Abraham Lincoln and this is the story of the rest of his family. And it starts in the early 1800s, like the 1810s or 1820s. And this is, I mean, this is, first of all, this is Liberty's wheelhouse. Liberty loves, I'm talking in the third person now. Um, but <laughs> that was awesome. I, I love, I didn't even need to, I love this time period. You know, like I love the Civil War era. I love to read, you know, all about the 1900s around, around things around that. So this is about his family and it's, it's incredible. It This is like, you know, before the internet, so nobody could gossip, you know, immediately. And his father was a very famous actor. And there were all these wild stories that people would tell about his dad. He was a, an actor over in England who came to America with his young wife. And they had 10 children. But he was never home. And he was friends with all these famous people like Walt Whitman, who wrote all these poems about him. And he traveled the country and... They were just, you know, the kids would hear stories about their dad that most of which were not true at all. But because, you know, there was no internet and there was nothing to dispel these stories, and people could just basically write whatever they wanted in the newspapers, you know, people would talk about their dad. But also, he was very unusual himself. Now, first of all, let me explain that Karen Joy Fowler did extensive research on this novel. It is a novelization, but she went to newspaper articles and letters and all the documents that she could find pertaining to all of these kids and and the parents and created the story from there. So I mean there's tons of stuff on the dad and a lot of them he was he was um very grandiose. He had a terrible drinking problem. He performed a lot of his his roles drunk, which was mentioned in all of the reviews. Um, he was a vegetarian, which was seen as being like completely unreasonable back then. Like nobody could believe like they lived on a farm and they weren't allowed to pluck flowers or cut down trees or harm any animals whatsoever. And people just thought that he was bonkers. Uh, they lived outside of Baltimore and then the family moved to Baltimore at one point. And what I didn't know was a lot about Baltimore. Baltimore at this time in like the 1840s was the second most populous city in the whole country. And it was just violent and scary pretty much all the time. The, there were gangs that of kids that ran the town there. There was this new political group called the know nothings that used to beat and murder people who wouldn't vote for their party. Uh, there were pigs and wild dogs that walked the streets all day and this is kind of the area that John Wilkes Booth grew up in. This is what he grew up in. The Booths had slaves, even though they didn't believe in slavery. And part of the story is them, you know, and, and some of their friends and their neighbors, like, convincing themselves that they weren't bad people because of this. And like, trying to differentiate between themselves and people who lived in the South. And John Wilkes Booth was sent away to a private school where all of his classmates were Southern. And that's where he came back with his views about slavery and believed that, you know, the country needed slavery, you know, and he was like 13 or 14 years old. And like at this point, you know, 13 or 14 years old, you're basically grown up. Like the father was never home. The mother, they had, she had 10 children, four of whom died when they were young. And this caused her a lot of grief. She was often, you know, bedridden 
was very depressed. And so the kids were left to run the farm. Like John was running the farm when he was like 15 years old. He was the sole breadwinner or the sole person responsible for this farm. You know, some of the other children were like, you know, 15 and they were sent to babysit their dad while he was on tour. You know, they had to give up their dreams. They had to give up the people that they loved, like when they were very young, because they were expected to take care of the family. And I just cannot stress enough how amazing the writing is in this book. And we get to see these kids as they grow up. And then there's also a lot about nature and and there's ghosts and there's animals. And it's just, it's a masterpiece. That's all I can call it. I mean, I fell into this book. It was 500 pages long. And I would have read it for another 1,000, 2,000, 5,000 pages. I mean, it's just remarkable and heartbreaking and just It might be my favorite book of the year now. Sorry to all the other books, but I I just can't get over how much I loved this book. I do want to tell you just all the trigger warnings. You know, it's 500 pages in a time when people got sick, in a time when children weren't looked after, in a time with enslaved people. So all the bad things happening, you know, the whole book through. Um, And it really makes you think about, you know, what we think about now as far as like what's difficult and, and you know and the things that affect us, it it just I'm just gonna keep talking about it and possibly pop back into the third person if you don't stop me, Vanessa. So <laughs> I'm just gonna stop there. But I am so in love with this book. It is Booth by Karen Joy Fowler. I saw that one because it's a beautiful cover, and I don't know why. Like I was like, oh okay. Like I I I have not spent as much time with this particular like era of history, and like kind of passed by it, and then immediately saw you raving about it online. It's like, oh, that was a bad call, <laughs> but that's okay. I, I can read it now. <laughs> I don't know. Somehow it it slipped my attention. Like I know that I I read about the deal when it came out, like in in Publishers Lunch, but then I. Sure kind of forgot about it and so somebody was talking about something else and I was like oh yeah Karen Joy Fowler has a new book and you know I've read like Manhunt which is you know the search for John Wilkes Booth you know after he shot Abraham Lincoln and I've read all kinds of books about the assassination of Lincoln but and I knew that his dad was an actor but I didn't know hardly anything else about his family at all Mm. or about his childhood you know like the book is not about him you know obviously he is a character in their lives because you know he lives on the farm and he takes care of things and but like it's mostly about the other people in the family. Mm-hmm. And I just did not know, like, any of this. I mean, it's it's amazing. Well, now i got to read it. So, hey, that's, again, the show is just serving its purpose. <laughs> I am now convinced. <laughs> <laughs> so, yay. And I already have the copy of it. So, woohoo. Woohoo. All right. I will tell you about my first pick, which I read some time ago. And I when I saw that it was on this week, I was like, oh, cool. I get to talk about it. Cause it's an author I really like. That is Like a Sister by Kelly Garrett. So Kelly Garrett is the author of a cozy, uh, cozy, ugh, yeah, words, cozy series that you may know called the, oh my gosh, what's the name of the series? Detective by Day. It starts with Hollywood Homicide. And I think the second one, it, which is, it's just a duology, I believe, is Hollywood Ending. This one is not a cozy. It's a departure. It's a you know, difference. So more in the, like, again, thriller vein. It's told from the perspective of Lena Scott, who is a 28-year-old grad student at Columbia working on a master's, I think, in, like, Nonprofit management. And one morning she's on her way to class and she stops by a local bodega to get a, a Snapple. <laughs> I appreciate that little detail. Um, and gets a Google alert that stops her in her tracks. It's from the New York Daily News and it says former reality star Desiree Pierce found dead in lingerie in Bronx with cocaine and no shoes. Desiree Pierce is Lena's half sister and she's finding out that, you know, she's died in this like horrible way. 
Lena and Desiree are both the daughters of a hip hop mogul named Mel, but their lives played out really differently. Mel hasn't really been a part of Lena's life since she was about four. She was raised by her mother and grandmother and has worked really hard to sort of forge her own path outside of her dad's influence and celebrity. Whereas Desiree, you know, the half-sister, on the other hand, has kind of always been in the public eye, sort of the party girl in the social scene. She was on this reality show, and then since then has kind of become like an influencer type on Instagram. The two had sort of lost touch. In fact, they hadn't seen each other, I think, in two years or even spoken since Lena cut Desiree out of her life after an incident that occurred. But now Desiree is dead, and the authorities are pretty quickly writing off her death, right? They see her in this park with no shoes, they find drugs on her, and after doing the autopsy, they determine that it was a death by overdose of heroin, and they're like, that that's that, you know, story wrapped. And Lena just cannot shake the fact that there has to be more to her death. Like, for one, why was Desiree, like, what was she doing above 125th? That's, like, not a place that she would travel to in New York. How could she have died of a heroin overdose when she's terrified of needles? But of course, every time she asks these questions, she's like, well, people give her a kind of insensitive responses along the lines of like, well, that's just what, you know, people who do drugs do. And so she becomes pretty, pretty hell bent on finding out, you know, what it is that really happened to her sister, if it is not indeed, you know, what it looks like on its surface. The mystery explores sexism and racism, including how differently law enforcement and the media treat the death of a black woman, let alone one that they have written off as being related to drugs. Lena is an awesome character. I loved her internal monologue. Uh, And I loved her fierce defense of her sister, you know, even if it meant sticking her nose in like every which place. Um, It was just a lot of fun. It's narrated, the audiobook anyway, is narrated by Bonnie Turpin, who is, as I've said multiple times on the show, an auto-listen for me. So I I just really appreciated her like interpretation of Lena's character. Uh, Trigger warnings on this one include obviously drug use and the death of uh, a person from an overdose. It is. It was so much fun. I'm glad, to, like, really excited to see what else comes from Kelly because I knew her writing to be, you know, in the cozier vein, and it's interesting to see her trying some other stuff out. So I hope we get to read more from her very soon. And that is "Like a Sister" by Kelly Garrett. All right. So my next book is my next three books actually are ones that I read a long time ago. So I'm sorry if I'm a little sketchy on the details, but. My next pick is The Old Woman with the Knife by Gu Byung Mo, and it's translated by Chi Young Kim. This is a novel out of South Korea that came out a few years ago and has been translated into English now. And of course, I had to read a book called The Old Woman with a Knife. I mean, immediately that I sat right down and read it as soon as I got it, because how fun does that sound? And it's a little different than some of the uh, books like mysteries coming out right now with like elderly characters. There's the ones with the elderly woman who is a serial killer, um, which is fun. And then there's that new series about the the Thursday murder club where they solve crimes at the nursing home. This one is more like I got it. Kind of felt like the professional that movie from a long time ago when Natalie Portman was just a little kitten. Um, it felt like the professional, but with an old woman instead of a, a middle-aged French man. And the the woman in question is named Hornclaw. That is her name in the book. And she's 65, and she's an assassin. And it works out really well for her, because people don't worry as often when women are around. They're not as suspicious. They tend to underestimate her, because you know she's been an assassin for a long time, and, and the older she gets, the less people find her to be a threat. So she's very good at her job. She's told... You know, who she needs to target and kill, and that is what she does. Um, she leads a very solitary life, 
we learn about her past. It's not always been that way. Uh, but now, you know, she lives alone and throughout her life, she's dealt with the sexism and violence uh, of being a woman, of being an assassin. Uh, and we learn how she came to be an assassin and how she now it's just her and her dog named Deadweight. And she's 65, but she's still taking assignments. And it is during one of these assignments that she is injured. And so she has to go and see a doctor. And she becomes very attached to the doctor and his family. And this is bad because as an assassin, you should never get attached to anyone because feelings complicate everything, as she learned earlier in her life. And so now, you know, she's older. There are younger assassins who are looking to take her jobs. There is someone from her past with a vendetta looking to settle the score. It's sad and compelling and sometimes darkly humorous. It's about a woman headed into her twilight years, uh, who works in a job that, you know, she never should have made it this long, really, uh, except that she's exceptionally skilled. And it didn't end the way that I expected it to, which which I liked. And I have complicated feelings about assassin books because, you know, like, I enjoyed this character. There are sometimes I read or watch things with assassins, and I'm like, well, I don't like that person, and... Like, they don't make me feel anything for them, especially given that their career is murdering other people. Um, and in this case, I, I definitely really liked Hornclaw, and I liked learning about her life. I do want to give content warnings. There are a lot, including sexual assault, suicide, violence, blood and gore, murder, animal death, illness, and the death of a loved one. Uh, if you like slow-moving, suspenseful, interesting novels, then you definitely want to pick this one up. It is The Old Woman with the Knife by Gu Byung-mo, translated by chi Young Kim. I need to read that one, too. I love an older protagonist in that kind of yeah. setting. But this does sound a little different from the ones, like, the examples that you yeah. gave, which are ones I've recently read, yeah. <laughs> I mean, she's not, like, you know, guns blaring, you know, wearing sunglasses, running around, shooting everybody willy-nilly, you know, not like, you know, she's like, <laughs> wee, you know, wee, she's really wee, interesting, wee. but also, like, you know, I'm trying, like, for example, I would say, like, the show Barry, like, I tried to watch okay. Barry, but I just didn't really, I don't know. Like, vibe. I didn't yeah, think I he was a good person or even trying to be, like, a good person. I don't know. It's, people are like, you should have kept going because he's, like, has people a People have told me that, arc, too. But yeah. I don't know. But, like, for this, I was like, oh, you know, I, I, it, and, and I don't know that I should feel bad for someone who runs around killing people for a living. Um, or in this case, <laughs> shuffles around killing people for a living. But, shuffles like, around. you know, I just did. I really, I really liked this book. Oh, good to know. Okay, I will definitely pick that up. Alrighty, my next one, I have to be very careful how I describe this book, uh, <laughs> because it's big talk for the person with whom I am podcasting with. Uh, so this book is called The World Cannot Give by Tara Isabella Burton. And I feel like it is a little bit in the vein, and I usually see these comps and don't agree with them, the secret history. And I say a little bit because I don't know that it's like all the way there, but I'm like, okay, this gave me some of the vibes. And I also saw plenty of reviews that are as polarized in the way that I often feel people are polarized by the secret history. But I'll leave that up to, you know, each of you to determine for yourselves. It is a ride. Bah! I so say. The, <laughs> which is why I said a little bit, because I know who you are. <laughs> but... The main character is Laura Stearns, and she is this young, sweet summer child. She's 16. Um, she's about to enroll at a college called St. Dustin's, which is on the coast of Maine. 
She is ecstatic about it for these very specific reasons, which is that, again, she's this very, like, innocent creature, and she is absolutely obsessed with this particular book written by an author named, I think, Sebastian Webster. He's this very Byronic figure. He wrote the book in the 30s, and then he died when he was 19 when he went off to fight in the Spanish Civil War. And so all of this lore, plus, like, the sweeping themes of this book, have Laura just, like, clutching this book to her chest and just like all she can like talk about. She's read it several times. It always makes her cry. A lot of stuff makes her cry, to be clear. She's very like moved by beautiful things. But she's just bent on having what she sees as like the kind of soul-shaking experience that she reads about in this book, which um, <laughs> there's these two sentences that are said a lot. It's like escaping the sclerotic modern world and to have a shipwreck of the soul, which are being pulled directly from like the, the book she's reading and not just this book. <laughs> So, like, yeah, okay, girl, but sure. So she convinces her parents, who sound more or less like they're just tired of listening to her, <laughs> to tra- let her transfer from where she's at in Henderson, Nevada, to St. Dustin's, um, the prep school there. And sorry, I, I think I said this was a college. I'm pretty sure this is a high school. Um, but so this private school on the other side of the country that just so happens to be the author's alma mater. Wait, is it a college? Because she's 16. Now I'm questioning everything that I know about this book. But yeah, it's probably college because she's 16. So from the moment she gets there, she's like, I have to have the experiences. And she's even arranged to like stay at the same house where like the author stayed when like they were, you know, at the school. And shockingly, her classmates do not share this same energy. Uh, So dear sweet Laura is like kind of disillusioned by their lack of excitement and what she sees as sort of irreverence for like the school and its history and its traditions, especially this one tradition that she's been dying to be a part of called Evensong, which is this weekly church service complete with choral music at which attendance for all students is mandatory. And then she meets Virginia Strauss, who is the leader of this chapel choir, who (laughs) I looked at my notes and apparently the vibe she is giving me, (laughs) she's like a blend of Big Red from Bring It On, Aubrey from Pitch Perfect, and whatever Mandy Moore's character was in that movie called Saved that I think is criminally underrated. But she's this newfound Christian and she's extremely passionate to the point of like fanatical zealotry. Like she's very, very, very dedicated to her Christian faith. She's a fellow devotee to St. Dunstan. So like in this Dunstan's, pardon me. And so in this way, Laura is like very drawn to her because she's like, finally, someone who gets it, who's like as dedicated to this as I am. But Virginia is originally wants to like nothing to do with Laura because Laura's basically comes out her fangirl and like, oh my God, you, I heard you sing in the choir and like what you sing is so gorgeous. And like, I can't believe you know all of the words to these hymns. And she's like, oh, it's not meant to be gorgeous. It's meant to be in like, you know, worship and like worship isn't supposed to be aesthetically pleasing to you. It serves a purpose. So, like, don't get along. And, of course, that just makes Laura, like, want her to like her more. And then this progressive new chaplain shows up. This is all in the description of the book. I know this is a spoiler, but basically sees, like, Virginia and the problem that she's probably going to become. And sort of takes reins of choir leadership away from her, right? As Virginia has had all the powers to, like, control everything about this choir, including bringing Laura aboard. And she doesn't really take very well to that change in sort of, you know, authority. And that is where the book goes to hell. (laughs) So it is moody. It is melodramatic AF. It explores like the corruptive force of power, again, of zealotry. It explores queer desire. 
the like search for self, but also a little bit in the lots of young people left to their own devices in this like kind of insular setting can be a problem. So in some ways, it also kind of reminded me of elements from like Bunny by Mona Awad or and again, maybe a little bit of secret history in like that way, not 100% comp for comp, but it was just again, like a ride. And I've heard that there are some similarities to her first novel, which I have not read. But it kept me glued enough to the page, even with all the melodrama and stuff, because I was just like, "What this is heading to a fever pitch, and I know it. Um, so yeah, I really enjoyed it. <laughs> it's, again, a ride of a book, but I think that while it might not be for everybody, it will definitely be for some folks. And that, again, is The World Cannot Give by Tara Isabella Burton. So, like, secret history comps are like my kryptonite. I know. know. <laughs> and, and they never work out, but I still stop and read them, you know? Like, what is that monster that if you, like, throw something... Is it a vampire? I can't think right now. My brain's not working. <laughs> but, like, if something's chasing you and you, like, throw a bunch of pieces, it has to, like, stop and, like, pick them all up before it can... Oh, I don't know. I don't know. That's what I feel like That's the secret you. history comp. I'm just, like, I'm going along my day and it's, like, a secret history comp. And I'm, like, oh, I have to stop and read this. <laughs> so, for instance, the other day I read this book that comes out in November called The Resemblance by Lauren Nosset. And it was called you know, a secret history meets this. And so I read it and secret history, not at all. Excellent book. Yes. Sure. Yeah. Liked it a lot. Not secret <laughs> history, but I think this one is uh, maybe there, there's just like these very specific vibes and like plot points that I'm like, okay, I can see. And it gave me that like, yeah, that sort of tense of like, Oh, something's not right feeling. I do not think it is like necessarily a one for one comp. It's secret history is so singular. Well, it's also become like this blanket. Yep comp for like, oh there's kids in school at a, yeah at exactly. a school mm-hmm. yeah and like something suspenseful happens so i was very curious to see if it was just me and that's how i write where i was like i'm gonna peep on some of these reviews and then i saw a lot of like <laughs> devotees who like literally have a secret history shelf in their goodreads who were like finally a cop and so i don't i don't know if it's like all the way but i would i think you'll find like bits of it i will have to read it all the disclaimers in the world so liberty doesn't like come beat me on the head <laughs> Oh, I'm way too lazy to leave my house. (laughs) I'm safe. So my next pick is a collection of stories by Lady Hubbard, who wrote my favorite novel of last year, The Rib King, which everyone should just read, still read. So my husband is not a big reader and does not often walk far into my office, which is, you know, covered in books, you know, because usually he can just talk to me from the doorway. But the other day he came in and he was like talking and he's like in the middle of it, he goes, uh, you have six copies of this book called The Rib King. And I was like, yes. He's like, how many can you read at once? And I was like, just one. But I don't know. I had to just keep buying it know. whenever I went somewhere. Yeah, I just love that book so much. Um, anyway, so this collection of stories is called The Last Suspicious Holdout. And it's excellent. Uh, it is 13 stories set from 1992 to 2007. They're set in the South. And they're these mildly interconnected stories about black people living in what the nation tells its citizens is post-racial America, and which we know is not a thing that ever existed. Uh, there's a story about a young girl who has just moved from Granada, who is living with her aunt now and her mother, and she's hanging out with this group of kids who are not nice to her, and they take her to the house of this woman who sells homemade popsicles. Uh, and, you know, meanwhile, the kids are just still being awful to her. There is one about a well-to-do wife of a politician who is hosting a tea party with these other well-off women who are married or were married to esteemed lawyers and politicians. And she receives a call about her husband 
uh, telling her something that she doesn't want to hear, and so she pretends that nothing is wrong. There's one about a young man who is in jail for a crime that he didn't commit, uh, and his brother is angry that people are giving him false hope about his release because he's been there for eight years, and he doesn't believe that they're that he's going to get out. Um, his brother, on the other hand, owns a bar, and he knows that people are dealing drugs out of it, and other crimes are are being planned out of the back. There's a young woman who has a photo of her grandfather who she never met, but as she gets older, she starts to make up these stories about him and tells people all these wild tales about this man in this photo that she can barely make out in the background. Uh, There's uh, one about a disbarred attorney who is trying to come up with the tuition to get his son reinstated in a private school after an incident. His son is the only black student at this school and, you know, is definitely uh, being singled out you know, because he's he's kicked out of school for something that is is very very mild. Each tale is, like I said, slightly related to another. Uh, the book calls it a, the, set in a slice of southern suburbia, and that's definitely a good way to say it. There's just enough in each story to punch you in the heart. Uh, I just think Lady Hubbard is just a remarkable writer. I would love to read whole novels set in each of the worlds of these stories with these characters. I just cannot get over what an incredible writer she is. And this one is, uh, I want to give content warnings. There is uh, child abuse and endangerment, racism and racialized language, chemical use and abuse, infidelity, violence and murder, and loss of a loved one. This is The Last Suspicious Holdout, stories by Lady Hubbard. And now we are going to hear from our next sponsor. This episode is sponsored by The One That Got Away With Murder by Trish Lundy. Robbie and Trevor Cressmont have enough wealth to ensure they'll never be found guilty of any wrongdoing, even if everyone believes they're behind the deaths of their ex-girlfriends. Let us all take a collective angry sigh at that. Lauren O'Brien, the new girl at school, has a dark past of her own, and she's desperate for a fresh start. Except when she starts a relationship with Robbie, her chance is put in jeopardy. During what's meant to be their last weekend together, Lauren stumbles across evidence that might just implicate Robbie. And after a third death rocks the town, she must decide whether to end things with Robbie or risk becoming another cautionary tale. This is an edge-of-your-seat YA thriller that's perfect for fans of Karen McManus and Holly Jackson. Make sure you pick that up now wherever books are sold. And thank you once again to The One That Got Away With Murder by Trish Lundy for sponsoring today's show. Today's episode is brought to you by The Dial Press, publishers of The Prospects by K.T. Hoffman. The pressure cooker of minor league baseball leads to major chemistry in this exhilarating, sexy, and triumphant Rivals to Lovers debut romance. Gene Ionescu is the first openly trans player in professional baseball. He has nearly everything he's ever let himself dream of. That is, until Luis Estrada, Gene's former teammate and current rival, gets traded to the Beavers. Now, Gene and Louise can't manage a civil conversation off the field or a competent play on it, but in the close confines of dugout benches and roadie buses, they begrudgingly rediscover a comfortable rhythm. As the two grow closer, the tension between them turns electric and their chemistry spills past the confines of the stadium. So this is one of the first adult rom-coms published by a major publishing house centering a gay trans man by a gay trans man. It also has ADHD and anxiety representation and some joyful, heartfelt moments. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to The Dial Press, publishers of The Prospects by KT Hoffman for sponsoring this episode. All right, Vanessa, what do you have for us? 
My next one is Cinder and Glass by Melissa de la Cruz, which was really fun. Um, as you may have guessed from the title, <laughs> this is a Cinderella retelling, but with a twist. It is YA. It takes place in Versailles, which is an easy way to hook me. I have a major soft spot for like aesthetically gaudy and lavish things with the cognitive dissonance that like that is just so wasteful and like you know all the problems that come with like monarchies and stuff it's it's a major like Achilles heel for me but it also features characters that are based on actual historical figures from the reign of Louis the 14th so it was just a easy like oh yeah I'm gonna pick that up it's set in 1680s in France and 15 year old Cendrillon is getting ready to move to Versailles with her father where she is to be a courtier it was at one point a dream for her, and it, it still is overall, but she's suddenly getting nervous now that the time has come. It's you know basically the day before she's supposed to leave. She still hasn't packed, and everyone's asking her why. And she's sort of just having, you know, feelings about the fact that she grew up, you know, without her mother. Her mother died, I believe, in childbirth, or if not, when she was just very young. And so she was unable to train Centurion in the ways of court life and like how to be, you know, a proper lady like she was. But, you know, her father comes and says, hey, you know, like it's going to be fine. It's going to be great. Her father is one of the king's closest advisors, so he'll be with her at court. She's like, okay, you know, it's going to be all right. Time comes and they go off to the palace. But of course, it's more complicated than she imagined. She struggles to fit in, but then she befriends someone named Auguste, who, of course, is not someone that she probably should be friends with because he's the king's illegitimate son. And then her father dies soon after remarrying. And so all of her sort of dreams are dashed because her new stepmother and stepsisters, as you know, you may have predicted, predicted make Centurion, who they now call Cinder, do the household chores and in her own chateau, nonetheless. But that ends her dreams of court life and her, you know, relationship with Auguste. But then the king announces that his son, the Dauphin, is going to be choosing 20, 25, 22, 20-something 20 <laughs> girls to woo before selecting one as his bride. So it's kind of like a <laughs> bacheloresque competition going on instead of just like everyone come to this ball. Uh, so Cendrillon decides that she's going to join the competition, of course, against her stepmother's wishes, but with the help of her godmother. She doesn't like the Dauphin, right? She doesn't like want anything to do with him. But of course, she has to go to this ball because it's like her chance at freedom and not having to be, you know, stuck underneath the thumb of, of her stepmother and stepsisters. So in the hopes of being picked as one of, you know, these 20-something women, then she she goes and she shows up. And so she does get picked to be one of them. But unfortunately, that is also complicated because it puts her back into contact with Auguste, who again is the illegitimate son. But, you know, the sparks, they fly. So now she's in a pickle. You know, does she choose, does she follow her heart and choose love with Auguste? Or does she give in to, she basically, does she, you know, still try to like end up with the Dauphin because that is her real only chance at freedom. It's very tender. There's like strong female characters, which is great. It's a really fun look at the French court. There's some like queer and straight romances in the book. And the audiobook is done by Lauren Ezzo, which is also, she did a really great job. Them. So yeah, I just enjoyed it. It was a fun, like, nice little distraction. I haven't read a Cinderella retelling in some time, so it was fun to spend time with that story, but with a little bit of a twist, plus all the French court stuff. So that is Cinder and Glass by Melissa de la Cruz. Okay. My last pick for today is a middle grade fantasy novel. It is The Ogress and the Orphans by Kelly Barnhill. And I love a good middle grade fantasy novel. And they all seem to be like very long, and I like that, too. I, I've just always liked big books. You know, for some reason, it's like, the more book there is, the more excited I am about it. I don't know why that is. 
But Kelly Barnhill, you might remember, wrote a great collection of short stories called Dreadful Young Ladies and Other Stories and The Witch's Boy. And very excited because she has her first adult fantasy novel coming in May. Very busy, Kelly Barnhill. But uh, the name of the book, I'm, oh, The Girl Who Drank the Moon. I was trying to remember the one that she won the Newbery Medal for and it left my brain, but it came back. Um, it was a quick turnaround. Uh, so this is The Ogress and the Orphans, and it's about a town called Stone in the Glen, which was once uh, a beautiful town. And the narrator of this book, uh, you'll have to try and guess who it is, um, is telling the story of how once upon a time, the Stone in the Glen was this lovely place and it had trees and it had a library and it had all these beautiful buildings. And one by one, these fires start and the buildings burn down, the library burns down, uh, a lot of the homes burn down. Um, there is an orphanage where these 15 orphans live, which was next to the library. And now every day they smell the ashes from this fire. Uh, and then the trees burn down. Because the trees burn down, there's no water to absorb the rain. And so the town gets all mushy and floods. And things are just not going really well in this town. And the people at one time, you know, they thought this was a beautiful land. But now they're upset and they're, you know, worried about what's going on. And there are rumors of dragons. And... There is a there is a bad dragon in this book. You know, the, the narrator explains it like not all dragons are bad, but definitely this book has to have a villain. So the dragon is bad in this book. Um, and there's a man that comes and he chases off the dragons and everyone thinks he's a big hero. So they vote him to, uh, as mayor of their town and he's telling them that he's going to fix everything. You know, and around this time, after the village is destroyed, there's an ogress who is bigger than the house, bigger than most people. She comes in and lives in the town and she's very quiet and she's very kind and she helps out but because the townspeople you know who were once happy are, are very unhappy and things keep happening in their town and they don't know what's going on and eventually a child is goes missing um, but although that is like this is one of those books where they put that in the blur but it's not something that happens until like way 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 far into the book and she is blamed for that and it's just this like, lovely fairy tale. I was reading a lot of the reviews of it after on Goodreads, and I was a little surprised that people thought that it was a little young for a middle grade book. Um, I thought it was perfect. And some people do find it to be a little heavy-handed because we know who this mare is supposed to be, and we know, you know, what the story is supposed to be about this one's beautiful land that is now filled with fighting and, and worry and suspicion and fear. But... I loved the ogress. I loved the writing and the way that the story is told. You know, like it feels like a fairy tale. Kelly Barnhill is an incredibly amazing writer uh, and it's just so compelling. And I just, I loved everything about it. Um, I was going to try and remember, oh my goodness, I've already forgotten everything that I was going to do today. There was another book that I just read that I think I talked about on the show about a troll who lived under a bridge and the kids that meet the troll. And I wanted to mention that again because I loved that book so much. And now I do not remember. So if I remember what it was, <laughs> I will put that title in the show notes because it's gone from my head. But this one is just beautiful and it's great. I think it would be a great book to read with your kids. It is The Ogress and the Orphans by Kelly Barnhill. Seeing as how there are approximately 72,000 books <laughs> floating around your head at any given time, we will absolutely yeah. forgive. If you oh, can. oh, I think of course I have you it. I think it. it's, of course. I think it's, 
Hold on. It's Midnight The Midnight Brigade by Adam Borba. There we go. I like to think That's I brought it. that on. Sure. Yeah. You know. Well, I knew I had like Adam and Midnight in my head and Google was my friend today. So I just needed a little tap. <laughs> yeah. I just wanted to remind people again that that book existed because I feel like it didn't get a lot of attention last year uh, and okay. the rights have sold. They're going to make it into a movie. Oh. And I thought it was excellent. So I got a meaningful, like, little jolt of serotonin when you said the words middle grade fantasy. Like, and I realized that that's, like, a thing I've been craving. Something really fun. And, like, I, I didn't know I was going to get excited about it until you said it. That made oh, me yeah. I mean, need to, like, fit this into my reading plan very soon. Yeah. Because we all need a little bit of that. Um, yes, we do. So my last pick, funny story. Um, I actually figured this out last night and then completely forgot because I was half asleep when I was doing it. And then remembered again, like maybe 20 minutes before, whatever, 40 minutes before we went to record that one of my books that I was super jazzed to talk about today, last minute, <laughs> got bumped to May. So I was like, uh, and was like, need to pick another book to talk about, but I'm not like quite as cool as Lib and wasn't going to be able to bust it in like one evening. So I went searching and I actually found one that I'm super excited about, which is After the Romanovs, Russian Exiles in Paris from the Belle Epoque Through Revolution and War by Helen Rappaport. So obviously, A, I have not read this book yet, but I'm going to tell you a little backstory first. It isn't going to sound related, but it is, which is that I've been, again, the world is what it is. And so reading has actually been a bit of a challenge for me as have a lot of like concentration type tasks. So I've been doing a lot of audiobooks and also a lot of podcasts. I love a history podcast. And so I've really gotten into... Basically, I just love how fast, like, I'm fascinated and terrified by how history repeats itself. And I've gotten into the grim and mild, like, family of podcasts, one of which is Noble Blood by Dana Schwartz, whose book, Anatomy, a uh, love story, I, like, recently said I was reading, and I did. I loved it. But so Noble Blood is great. And then they have this other one called Unobscured that basically picks a different topic every season and then does a deep dive over the course of, like, 10 to, I think, 12 episodes, unpacking kind of everything that we sort of got wrong or that perceptually is like in just incorrect and so they've done one on the witch trials one on the Whitechapel murders and so this latest one that i listened to was about rasputin and the romanovs and i was so so taken in by this podcast i was listening to it all the time and about like everything that we've gotten wrong about rasputin because it was like a game of telephone that just snowballed and like granted he was not a great guy probably but like also has been mythologized in a way that is maybe not 100 true and so one of the other things they do in this podcast is include a bunch of expert interviews that are woven in throughout the shows, but then they also publish them like in completion at the end. And one of the experts they went back to over and over and over again was a woman named Helen Rappaport, who is the author of this book and is just like a total expert in the Romanovs and like really Russian history. So this book is a look at how Paris has kind of always been, in addition to like a city of, you know, the people associate with like cultural elegance and fine wine and food was also a place of refuge for people that were fleeing persecution and never apparently more so than like right before and after the Russian revolution. So for years, all of these Russian aristocrats who used to come to Paris during, you know, the Belle Epoque to like spend all their money and like go do fancy things and like, you know, leading their luxurious, luxurious lifestyles suddenly found themselves, you know, former princes were driving taxi cabs and, you know, their wives were working as like seamstresses and for fashion houses because of, you know, the Bolsheviks having and the the Russian Revolution in general. So it's a little bit about the fall from grace, I guess, but it also seems like it just focuses a lot on the intellectuals, the artists, the poets, the philosophers, writers that like came and like kind of made a, a living during that time. And also like the path that other people took, which was to like seek to overthrow the Bolshevik regime and others who, you know, found themselves trapped in a cycle of poverty. So it's kind of just a look at 
how like the aftermath really of like what happened next and given her research style and just how passionate she is about this I'm, I'm actually really jazzed to read the book so i just talked a long time about a book that i have not read yet but i am very excited about it that again is after the romanovs russian exiles in paris from the belle époque through revolution and war by helen rapaport if you want to read a great book about rasputin there was a biography that came out several years ago by douglas smith He's the other expert on the show. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there you go. Yeah, he's great. Yeah. I don't know how long it would take to listen to a 900-page book as an audiobook. I absolutely looked it up and was like, oh, God. (laughs) But I want to read it. It, It's probably like, well, you know, like 100 pages of footnotes and references and glossary, too. So it's really only like 800 pages, but um, it's very interesting. But it's like the booth thing where... Yes, yes. You know, they tell these stories that you know, weren't easily, you know, squashed or corrected. And now, you know, when I think about like the age of the internet, it's very easy to get the correct information, but it's also just as easy for people to, you know, spread misinformation, Misinformation. you know, so it's, it's like, are we better off or or not? Like, it's interesting to me. Super. I mean, on the whole, I think the internet is good because first of all, like, no matter what I'm thinking no matter, like, what I want to know, someone else has already had that same thought. <laughs> yep. <laughs> it's amazing to me. Amazing. You know? Same. Like, I'll be like, how many games have the Celtics won, like, while they're wearing this color jersey? You know? Like, how many times have they won, yep. you know, how as compared to, like, this color? Like, is there... You can find stats for everything. Anything. Statistics. <laughs> and so, it's like, sports fans are bananas about statistics. And they've all already had all these thoughts. Like, you know, they could be like, you know... When, when they're wearing, like, white sneakers as opposed to, like, sneakers of different colors. <laughs> yep. And, like, you know, it's just crazy. I've gotten way off topic and also the gone internet back around, <laughs> gone back around to the Celtics, which is where my brain is at most times when I'm not reading Talking books, about today. books. <laughs> So what are you going to read next? I am probably, well, A, I'm going to go read this Helen Rappaport book because, again, I just really dig her, but now I'm interested to go back to the rest of her backlist. Um, in addition, I'm going to be reading The Violin Conspiracy by Brendan Slocum, which is a mystery that involves a musician and it's by and about a person of color, which you don't all be, usually see in that thing. So yeah, I'm excited to read that. Very good. It's, it's excellent. Can't wait. I just got my hands on the new Kirk Wallace Johnson book. Uh, he Ooh. wrote The Feather Thief, which is yeah. excellent and a big book riot. Loved. Uh, what's the word I want? Beloved. Loved it. A book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> um, it's a great book. This one's called The Fisherman and the Dragon, Fear, Greed, and a Fight for Justice on the Gulf Coast. Uh, and I'm also going to be subbing on the When in Romance podcast. Uh, so I'm picking all these different books that I want to read. Hence this title. <laughs> So the one that I'm checking out next is called That Time I Got Drunk and Saved a Demon by Kimberly Lemming, because how could you not read a book with that title? (laughs) So I'm very excited about that as well. And that is our show for today. Uh, Thank you to our sponsors. Thank you to our awesome audio editor, Jen Zink. You can drop us a line at allthebooks at bookriot.com. 
You can find us online. Vanessa and I mostly hang out on Instagram. Vanessa is Buenos Dias SD. I am Franz and Comes Alive. And if you want to give us a treat, you can go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a rating or review. It helps other book lovers to find us. And as much as we would love to tell you about more books today, we just don't have the time, but you can read about more titles out now in the show notes at bookriot.com slash all the books, as well as find a link to our weekly new books newsletter. And for more recs or general bookishness, check out bookriot.com and don't forget to check out our full stable of podcasts at bookriot.com slash listen or just search book riot on your podcast player of choice and in case someone hasn't told you yet today you're doing a great job and in the meantime happy happy reading. reading